passage this morning is from 1 Thessalonians, if you'd like to turn there, we'll read it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, these are the words of God, here's what it says. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. It was always to fill up the measure of their sins. Wrath has come upon them at last. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news his life, death, and resurrection, his victory over the powers of sin and death, Satan. Lord, we thank you that he is our substitute. We thank you that you sent him to seek and save sinners like us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for the Holy Spirit whom you've sent to dwell in our hearts to illuminate the scriptures for us, Lord. So now we pray this morning as we open the scriptures together that you would illuminate them, you would help us to understand them through the power of your spirit. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Something, I'm having a malfunction here, one second. Okay. All right, I got to figure it out. Okay, well, apparently I'm a little weird because, okay, that was uncalled for. Uh, no, no, that's, that's, it's fine, I get it. I, so I'm reading a book about Denmark, um, and people are like, that's weird, okay. You, you should see the things I read books about. But I'm reading this book about Denmark, and it's really, it's kind of about, uh, not like the history of the country necessarily, but how the people live, how the people think. Um, in this book, I was reading it last night, and I came across a section where the author is discussing how Scandinavian people in general, how Danish people think about religion and God and things like that. And here's what she says, and by the way, if you're not aware of this, Nordic countries, so like Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, are considered by researchers some of the least religious um, in the world. The, the most secular is another way to put that. Um, but, but here's what she says on this topic of why these countries are so irreligious or why there is so little belief in God in these countries. Here's what she says, quote, researchers suggest that people are less likely to need the comfort of a God if they're living somewhere stable, safe, and prosperous. Scandinavians don't have to pray 
to a God that everything's going to be okay because the state has this all sorted out. In other words, Danes don't have much to pray about. End of the quote. Now, let me add to that. Danes don't think they have much to pray about. But, but this whole statement, really, when you get behind, now the author is not a believer either, and so there's, there's some assumptions and some presuppositions kind of flowing behind this whole thing. But, but, but what are these assumptions? Well, there's an assumption that the concept of, of a God in general or, or of a religion is, is just for people who, who need a little bit of comfort because their life's kind of hard. It's just for people who have some physical needs, and so they kind of need an imaginary friend to offer these these things to. But this this is completely and utterly false. This may be what some religions are about, but this is not what Christianity is about at all. We don't, we're not here this morning, we don't have faith and believe in God because it's a nice thought because it maybe helps us through some bad days. No, we believe in God because he is real. And how do we know that he's real? Because he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and because he speaks to us through his word. And that's what we're going to see this morning in our text. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see this morning that, that God works powerfully through his word, to strengthen his people, and to condemn unbelief. That's what we're going to see this morning. And we're just going to walk through that statement. So the first thing we're going to see this morning from this text is this. God works through his word. God works through his word. Look at verse verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, this is Paul speaking, you accepted it, Not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, Paul began his letter to the Thessalonians with a word of thanksgiving to God. And he thanks God a second time here. For what? What's he giving thanks for? For the Thessalonians' response to his preaching. For the Thessalonians' response to his declaration of the gospel. The gospel came to these people through Paul and his team, and they responded in faith. So the first thing I want, I want us to look at from this text, kind of sub-point one, is this. We serve a God who speaks. We serve a God who speaks. We, we do not worship a silent God. The God of the Bible is the God of the, the Word. He is a speaking God. He is a communicating God. So unlike that statement that we read from that book, this is not just God who's out there who we can pray to if we want. Our God speaks to us. God is not silent. God spoke and all things came into existence. So God speaks. He is the God of the word. He has a message. and He sends it out into the world. The second thing is this. God's word comes to us through humans. Look again at verse 13. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so humans spoke this word, Paul and his team, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You see what's going on here? Paul is saying, God has spoken his word to you, Thessalonians. How? 
Well, well, through me, through Paul, through Paul and his team. So Paul stood up in the synagogue initially to preach the gospel. And later in their homes, as he's teaching them truths from God's word, God was speaking through him. So the Thessalonians, just like you, were sitting there. They're, they're hearing Paul with their ears. They're hearing Paul's voice. They're hearing Paul's words and Paul's language with Paul's mannerisms. And that's what's going on on the surface level, but there's much more going on. They were hearing God through Paul. You see that in the text. Paul says, you, you received the word of God from us, but you knew it was the word of God, not just the word of men. So it was the word of men. In other words, coming from a human, but they recognized it as the, as the, the word of God. And this is the normative way that God speaks through humans. Now, God can speak in many different ways. Ultimately, God has spoken in his son, Jesus Christ. God can speak through angels. We see that all throughout scripture. God can speak through dreams and visions. But the normative way that God speaks to his people is through other humans. Jesus Christ himself, the embodiment of the word of God, as John tells us, trained his disciples to do what? To speak his word, his message. And then they, speaking, eventually wrote these things down. And so now we can hold God's word, God's message in our hands. We can see it with our eyes and hear it with our ears. The, the, the scriptures are the very words of God. Second Timothy Paul uses an interesting word to basically say that the scriptures are, are God-breathed, are the breath of God. Brothers and sisters, what this means is when, when someone stands up here or anywhere else and faithfully and accurately preaches the message of this book, you may be hearing human words and human language. You are hearing the words of God. You are hearing the message of God himself, the creator of the universe. This is the great mystery of preaching. What, what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. It would seem to be a very foolish way to communicate a message through people like me. But yet here we are. This is why the, the reformer Martin Luther called the church, he had this great word in German, he called the church Mundhaus, which means a mouth house. Because the church is where God opens his mouth and speaks to his people through his word. When you hear the word read, as you have this morning, when you hear the word prayed, as you have this morning, when we sing the word together, when we confess the word together, you are not hearing just human words. You are hearing divine words from the mouth of God himself. Our God speaks to us through, through his word, both then and now. And Again, how, how do we know this? Because what we are preaching to you week after week is the same thing that Paul was preaching to the Thessalonians 2,000 years earlier. What was Paul's message? What was Paul's gospel to the Thessalonian church? Well, we know exactly what it was. In, in the book of Acts, Luke records this for us. When Paul was in Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, this is what it says. What did Paul do? Paul went in, as was his custom, 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he opened the Bible with them, Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ or is the Messiah. So what was Paul's preaching like? He opened the Old Testament. He explained it and proved that it was all about Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who had to die, the one who rose again from the dead. This message that we proclaim to you is the same message that Paul proclaimed. Jesus is the Messiah. That is the message. He is the Savior. He is the one whom the prophets of old said would come. He is the Davidic heir to the throne. He lived, he died, he rose again, and now he reigns as messianic king over all the universe. We confessed this this morning in Colossians. He's the head of the church. He's the head of all creation. It was made for him and through him. In him there is hope. In him there is forgiveness of sins. In him and in him alone there is eternal life for all people who turn to him in faith. This is, this is the message. This is the word of God. This is the gospel of the eternal God. Much as the author of this book about Denmark wants to think this, these are not just some nice philosophical ideas. These are not just nice religious platitudes to get you through a hard week. It's not just a nice positive, encouraging way to view the world. This is the message of the king himself. That was what Paul proclaimed to the Thessalonians. That is the divine message, and that is what God proclaims to you today. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And just like the Thessalonians who sat there listening to Paul preach, to listening to Paul explain the scriptures and how they're all about Jesus, you now too must respond to this message which you are hearing and which you have heard. As we continue in the scriptures, we, we find there's, there's really only two ways to respond. There is the way of faith and belief, acceptance of Jesus Christ, trust in him, and there is the way of rejection or of indifference. They all end up the same. Rejecting the message, rejecting Christ. I don't believe that message. Well, what did the Thessalonians do? Paul's going to give us kind of two examples of these two ways. First, the Thessalonians. How did they respond? Look again at verse 13. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So the Thessalonians heard Paul preaching. They said, we believe that. Jesus is the Messiah. This is the divine message. They heard Paul, they believed it, they accepted it, they received it as God's message. They turned from their sin and their sinful idols, their pagan ways, and they put their faith and allegiance in Jesus Christ. In Acts 17, again, Luke describes for us the response of these believers. Verse 4, he says this. So he says, Paul tells them Jesus is the Messiah, and here's the response, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, 
as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So a group of Jews, a great many of the devout Greeks and a few of the le- not a few of the leading women heard Paul's preaching, came to faith in Jesus Christ and joined him and Silas and the rest of the team. This cost them dearly as we saw in chapter 1. Their suffering was great, but they believed, and so they followed Christ. In verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, again recounting the same event, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is glad and thankful that the Thessalonians accepted the truth and became believers in Jesus Christ. But, but who does Paul credit for this? Look again at the beginning of verse 13. Does, does he give credit to the Thessalonians for, for their great faith? No. Does he congratulate them on their brilliant choice? No. Does he congratulate himself on how persuasive his preaching was? No. Look again at verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this. Why would Paul thank God for this? Why would he thank God that the hearts of the Thessalonians grasped the divine nature of his message? Why would he thank God that the hearts of the Thessalonians embraced the human words as divine? Well, the reason is that God is the one who enabled them to do this. God is to thank for their conversion. Why? Because it was God's doing. They don't get any credit. God gets all the credit. We saw this back in, in verse, chapter 1, verse 4. They believed the evidence of their faith was evidence that God was at work amongst them and that he had revealed himself to them through Paul. Verse, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Paul had written this, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, How does Paul know this? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says, we know that God was working amongst you. Well, how do you know that, Paul? Because when I preached, you believed. It's a sign that God was working in your hearts. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And unless God works in our hearts, we all reject. We saw the same theme in, in when we, I don't know, four or five months ago when we were in Matthew 16, when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He said this in Matthew 16, 17. He says, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, again, this is the same thing Paul was teaching. You are the Christ or you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Same question. Who's responsible for Peter's confession? Was it Peter's brilliance that he connected all the dots no how does jesus respond he says blessed are you peter he continues but he says this flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven who is responsible for peter's confession that jesus is the christ god himself and in Acts 16 and we could go a thousand other places in scripture but we see the same theme in Acts 16 just before paul was in thessalonica he was in philippi He came down to the river, and here's what Acts 16 tells us. Paul Paul and Luke writing, saying, We, 
we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You see that? The Lord is the one who opens the heart to hear his message. Your understanding of the gospel message, your reception, your acceptance of the gospel message, your faith in Christ, it's not your doing. All, all the credit, all the glory, all the thanks goes to God himself. Your faith, your salvation is entirely a gracious gift of God the Father to you. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. When the message of the gospel came to you, you were born again. Again, not out of any of your brilliance or your good decision-making skills, but by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word. Isn't that incredible? And what response should this generate in our hearts? How does this truth apply to our lives? Well, the same way it did to Paul. Thankfulness. Gratitude. Hearts overflowing with thanksgiving to God who saved us, not because we were worthy, but because of his great love and mercy for us. Every day, our hearts. That's why Paul says constantly. Every time you see this word thanksgiving, it's constant. He's constant in prayer. He's constant in thanksgiving. Why? God saved us. God saved me. God saved you. How could we not be constant in thanksgiving? Too often we think of giving thanks to God. We, we quickly think of physical things. Thank you for my health. Thank you for food. Thank you for this building. These are great and biblical things to Give thanks for. But, but don't forget the spiritual thing, the much greater thing. Next time you, you sit down to, to pray before a meal or pray when you wake up, think of all the amazing spiritual blessings that God has bestowed on you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. The very faith that you proclaim is a gift from Him. He has given you freely. So thank Him for that. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have caused me to be born again to a living hope. Thank you for the faith that you have given me, that you enabled me to understand and to believe the gospel. Thank you that you have sent your spirit into my heart. Thank you for the great love with which you loved me, even, even when I was your enemy. Thank you for the ways in which you are shaping me to be more like Jesus. Thank you for for exposing and helping me fight my sin. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken in your word and continue to speak in your word. We worship a God who speaks. Like Paul, let, let, let this lead us to constant prayers of thanks to God. Because God works through his word and he is working. Again, it's not as if God speaks to us once and then leaves us. Now, in fact, what we find here in this verse is that God continues to work through his word. His word does not return to him void. When, when God's word goes out, it produces. It does work. Look at verse 13. The word of God 
which is at work in you believers. The word is at work in Thessalonica as Paul's writing this. It was at work when he preached before this, probably three to six months prior, and it's still at work in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians had received God's word. They became believers. Now it's working. It's alive. God's word is alive in the power of the Spirit. Peter calls it the living and abiding word. Hebrews says that the word is living and active. The message of the gospel revealed in the Holy Scriptures is a living message because it's empowered by a living God. Now, now that brings the, the question, what was the effect of God's work in these believers? Or, or another way to phrase it, how does Paul... 100 miles away, know that the word of God is at work in Thessalonica. He's not there. How does he know this? Brings us to our second kind of big point this morning. The, the word of God produces joyful endurance in suffering. The word of God produces joyful endurance in suffering. So, so when the word of God is at work, it does things. One of the things it does is it bears the fruit of obedience to God. The, the, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the children of God. It's kind of a common phrase, but it's, it's absolutely true. This was going on in Thessalonica. Look, look at verse 14. So, he's, he's thankful that the Word is at work among them. And look, notice the connection. For, I'm thankful that it's at work among you. How do I know this? For you, brothers and sisters became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So, so this is Paul's evidence that the word is at work in them. You see the connection. They're receiving the gospel, had led them into suffering, led them into persecution. Paul was worried, we find out in our next section in Thessalonians, that his work was going to be in vain. In other words, he was worried that they were going to experience this persecution because of their belief in the gospel, and that then they were going to turn from Jesus Christ and leave the faith. If that had happened, Paul would have known the word of God was not at work in them. They might have just been persuaded by his arguments or something like that. But Paul says, no, you're standing firm, and so I know that this is the work of God among you. Now, Again, just facing suffering is not evidence of the word of God at work. Everyone suffers. You can't escape that in this life. Even Scandinavians suffer. But the evidence is in their imitation of the Judean churches who were suffering faithfully. Faithfully. They were suffering in joyful obedience to Christ. They were suffering in a way that brought glory to God. They were suffering without compromising. The Judean churches in Jerusalem were suffering severe persecution at the hands of the Jews, but they remained faithful to the Lord. And Paul says, and the Judean churches were kind of known as like the original, uh, the coolest churches. And so Paul's kind of bolstering the faith of the Thessalonians, saying, you're just like the churches in Judea. You're faithfully enduring suffering. This is the normative experience for Christians at this time. But we know more than that about this church. We, we know about the attitude that they were enduring the suffering with. Look back to chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This again is the word of God at work. The Spirit works through the word. Suffering on behalf of Jesus with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul here again is consoling, encouraging the Thessalonians with this truth. You are just like the faithful churches in Jerusalem. You are doing well. I know, I am confident that God is at work among you because of this. By the power of the word of God, the believers in Thessalonica were standing strong in the face of opposition, the face of persecution. They weren't doing this begrudgingly. They weren't doing this complainingly. They were doing this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about how we can apply this today. The truth is, brothers and sisters, God works the same way in us. We serve the same God with the same word. He works through his word, through the gospel message, through the holy scriptures. How does this work? In the same way. Through the power, of, the power of the Spirit, God gives us faith to trust the promises that we find in his word. And when we trust his promises, the Spirit brings joy. And when we are believing God in faith, we can endure faithfully any trial that comes our way, any temptation. Pastor John Piper has an extremely helpful acronym that I've found and used. It's, it's in your bulletin if you want to look at it or just save it for later. I'll explain it to you. But, but he kind of gives this acronym as a method of, of how, to, how to unleash the power of the word of God in your life when you're, when you're facing trials and temptations. And it's APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. And here's the, the basic outline. The first step is admit that I can't do myself what needs to be done. I don't have the strength. That should be easy. Or maybe not. Sometimes that's hard. P is, is pray for God's help. T is trust a particular promise that he has given. And then A is act to do whatever God is calling me to do. And T is thank him for his help when I'm done. Now, now it's simple. It's a simple method, simple concept. But because God's word is powerful, and because God's Spirit works through His Word, this unleashes the power of God in your life. Again, so, so often we want to hear God, we want God to work in our life apart from His Word. But it's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. Again, we, we worship the same God that the Thessalonians did, and He is unchanging and works the same way. So, Let's kind of think through an example of this together and, and run through this, this method. So think of some type of physical trial. Maybe it's one you're experiencing. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe some type of medical emergency. Maybe, oh, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic. I mean, that would never happen. Uh, and, and, and you're scared. You're feeling fearful. And you're feeling a temptation to be, to be sinfully fearful, to, to give in to fear and anxiety. What do you do? Follow the acronym. A, admit. You, you admit that you, you can't face this alone. You can't deal with this fear alone. You can't deal with this anxiety alone. So you, so you ask God, Lord, Lord, I can't face this in my own strength. Left to myself, I, I will give in 
the fear and anxiety. I'm too weak. And you pray, God, grant me courage to face this. Give me the strength I need. Sustain my faith in this trial. Help me to glorify you in this trial. Father, don't let me be ruled by fear. You trust. You, you trust the specific promise that has been given to you by God. You trust the promise that was bought for you by the blood of Christ himself. One that would work well in, in this situation, Isaiah 41.10. This is what God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my, with my righteous right hand. And so you, you take that promise. Maybe you, you write it down. Maybe you memorize it. Maybe you put it on your desktop or your, your wallpaper on your phone. But you cling to that. By, by faith, you, you take this promise as your own, and, and you say, I trust this promise, Lord. I take hold of it. I take hold of your word. And then you act. You act in light of this. You step out by faith. You plod along in life. And at the end, whenever this may be, maybe it's days, maybe it's months, maybe it's years that you face this, you look back and pray, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for sustaining me. See, the thing is, God is always faithful to his promises. That's why you can claim them if your faith is in Jesus Christ. God's not going to say, well, yeah, but like not for you. That was for someone else. No. I can remember a season in my own life, a, a very dark season. I'll spare you the details. But, but the gist of it is this, a relationship that I had invested years in. Uh, it was, was certain, was, was leading towards marriage, was suddenly ended. And, and it was an extremely confusing and, and painful season. And I knew that I wasn't strong enough to endure the season faithfully. I didn't understand why it was happening. And so I prayed. I admitted my weakness. I prayed to God for his help. And I clung to the promise in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Speaking of God, he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's word told me that although this season was filled with pain, God was, was working on me and transforming me for my own good and for his glory. So I clung to that promise. I believed that promise. Even, even when I couldn't see it, even in the midst of the pain, I did my best to act in faith, to act on the truth of that promise. I stayed in fellowship. I kept learning. I kept growing. I stayed accountable. I didn't do everything perfect. I clung to Christ. I clung to that truth even when I didn't feel like it. And I repented when I needed to. I look back on that time, and I thank God. He was faithful to his promise because he is always faithful promises, because we know that all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God works through his word today, right now, even right now as you hear his word being proclaimed to you, God is at work. So what, what, what trial 
are you enduring? What, what temptation are you facing? What sin are you battling with? There's no hope to face these things on your own. The, the secret strength of the Christian life isn't in here. Don't look within yourself. It's, it's right here. It's the words of God living and active. It's, it's in Christ. It's in the gospel message. It's in knowing your own weakness and fleeing to God in prayer, fleeing to his word for truth. And, and if your faith is in Christ, he has purchased your victory with his own blood. You take the truth of the gospel message found in his word and you bring it to bear on your circumstances by faith. Preach the gospel to yourself in all these situations. You pray, you claim the promises of God and his word. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of temptation, when Satan would tempt him, said this, and this is perfect. He said, when Satan opens his mouth, it gives me the perfect opportunity to shove my sword down his throat. Speaking of the sword of the Spirit. And that's exactly it. That's how we face temptation. That's how we face trial. Take out the sword of the Spirit. Doesn't mean everything's going to always be perfect. There will be seasons of great pain in your life. This is what the Thessalonian church was going through. They were enduring joyfully. But they were enduring. They were suffering. They were being heavily persecuted. They responded in faith because they believed the gospel message. Their faith was in Jesus Christ, and through this faith, Paul again affirms them, they were a part of the true body of Christ, the church, God's people, Christ's people. But not all respond to the gospel this way. Not all respond to Jesus in repentance and faith. Not all responded to Paul's preaching by accepting Jesus. Some rejected Paul's message and by doing so rejected Christ himself. And in their rejection, they came to oppose God and oppose the spread of the gospel. Look, look at verse 14 through 16. For you suffered, they're suffering, the same things from your own countrymen, the Gentiles in Thessalonica, as they the churches in Judea did from the Jews. What did the Jews in Judea do? They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, speaking of Paul and his team, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, the wrath has come upon them at last. Paul turns now from consoling the Thessalonian church, Thessalonian church, he makes a case against the Jewish leaders of his day, specifically the ones in Jerusalem. He, he's like a lawyer laying out a case against them and their guilt before God and their sentence. Now, why? It's a consolation to the Thessalonian believers and all other believers. This, this is the consolation. This is the comfort God sees, God knows your suffering, and those who are making you suffer will not go without punishment. Vengeance is the Lord, Paul says in another letter. And in the beginning chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul lays this out really clearly. In other words, 
those who are persecuting you, who are killing you, God sees this. And unless they repent, God's judgment is upon them. God sees your suffering and he will set all things right. God is a just God. That sounds kind of harsh. But I think if we were sitting in here today and there were people who were not here because they had been killed for their faith, that would feel, okay, God is just. That's good to know. And before we get into Paul's case against the Jews, let me make something clear. This is not anti-Semitism. Paul's not upset about their ethnicity. Paul is Jewish. Paul is the stereotypical Jew, he tells us in Philippians. In Romans 9, Paul goes out of his way to talk about his love for the unbelieving Jews. Paul's not leveling a case on anyone just for being ethnically Jewish. This is about rejecting Jesus. So let's look at Paul's case. What were these Jewish leaders guilty of? Paul says they killed Jesus and the prophets. Pretty simple. The Jewish leaders arrested Jesus. Again, this is specifically about the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They arrested Jesus. They gave him over and accused him before Pilate. They were responsible for his death. His blood was on their hands. This is what Peter tells them in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, you murdered the Messiah that God sent to you. By doing this, the Jewish leaders were aligning themselves we saw this in 2 Chronicles, with the unfaithful, unbelieving, wicked Israelites of the Old Testament. The ones that we read about. They were claiming to be God's people, and yet every time that God sent them a messenger, like John the Baptist, or his own son, they ended up dead. They didn't want to hear God's word. This is how Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, ended up dead. Again, he's in this line of people that they killed. He would have been dead by this point in 1 Thessalonians. He, he ends his, he's standing before the Jewish court. They're accusing him of proclaiming Jesus. This is how he ends his speech. Listen to these words. You can understand why they killed him. He said, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, speaking of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What a statement. Promptly killed him after that. And even as they were killing him, they said, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. They rejected Jesus, they rejected God's prophets, and they rejected Paul and his team when he came along. Paul puts it this way again in our passage they drove us out. They drove us out of the city and they displeased God and oppose all mankind. Well, why are they, what does that mean? They oppose all mankind? Well, because they're hindering the message of the gospel from going to mankind. The only hope of mankind, they're trying to stop it. They hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. We, we learned last week that, that what pleases God is the spread of his gospel, the faithful proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. 
because again, that's how he works. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had placed themselves in direct opposition to that mission by trying to stop it. They did everything they could to stop the spread of the gospel. They tried to kill Paul so many times. Eventually, they were successful through Rome. By doing this, they they displeased God and stand opposed to all mankind. Tragedy. The very people whom Jesus came to did not receive him. What is the result of this? Paul says they are filling up the measure of their sins. God's wrath is upon them at last. One one author commenting on this verse put, put, put it this way. Paul declares that the Jewish opposition to the preaching of the gospel is the conclusion of a long history of sin. Again, it's what we saw in 2 Chronicles. The point is that throughout their history, always, that's why Paul says always, they have resisted the divine initiative. Now again, not speaking of all Jews, he's talking about these Jewish leaders who are rejecting Jesus Christ. There are tons of Jewish people getting saved, even in Thessalonica. So this is not some ethnic thing. Those who have aligned themselves against the gospel in Jesus Christ. When they heard the word, they rejected it and they tried to stop it. The result is the wrath of God. Rejecting Christ always results in the wrath of God. Sometimes temporally, Probably about 20, 30 years after Paul writes this, a Roman army would invade Jerusalem and would utterly devastate the city, killing hundreds of thousands of people, destroying the temple forever. And this is just a foretaste of the final judgment of God. And if you, the, 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 how horrific that event was is almost indescribable. Just, just, Google it sometime. It was horrible. That was just a foretaste of the final judgment, the final wrath of God. Why would God allow this? Why would God put this judgment on his people? Because they rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation. He's the only hope for mankind. And if you reject him, there's nothing else. There's no other hope. God's wrath is upon all who reject Jesus Christ and his message of salvation because Jesus Christ is the one who saves us from the wrath of God. Outside of Christ, we all deserve the wrath of God. Every single human that's ever lived because we are all born in Adam and sinful creatures. We've all rejected God. Even in that state, out of his love for us, God sent his son for us. There's nothing without Christ, without Jesus, without faith in his substitutionary death, there's nothing that separates you from the wrath of God. See, in Christ, Your faith is in Christ. Paul tells us there's nothing that separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ, there's nothing that separates you from the wrath of God. And one day, one day, you will face the full weight of this wrath and condemnation if you 
do not know Jesus Christ, your Savior. God's word tells us that even now, his judgment abides on you, kind of hovering over your life. You need a Savior. Jesus himself tells us this in John 3, 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son, him, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen to this. This is Jesus. But the wrath of God remains on him. There's your two options. Believe the Son, eternal life. Do not obey the Son, reject the Son, reject His message, wrath, no life. If you're you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, you've rejected Him up until this point, the the message is not, oh well, that's it for you, bye. The, The message is repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ right now. Christ has been presented to you. Respond in faith like the Thessalonian believers and and be strengthened by the living word of God. You heard Jesus' words. He says, whoever believes in me. Don't respond in unbelief like the Jewish leaders and remain under God's wrath. Don't be like Stephen says, stiff-necked and unrepentant. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. See the love of God displayed in the cross of Christ. Turn from your sin and live. Turn from your unbelief, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and enter into eternal life. And and hearing that, you you might be tempted to say, you know, that sounds nice. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how much I've sinned. You don't know how much I've scorned God, the things I've said to God or about God. You don't know the things I've believed. You don't know the people I've hurt. God would never forgive me for that. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this story right here. These words written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Christian killer before before he was converted. He was one of these Jews who was rejecting Christ. That's why he knows them so well. He was chasing down Christians, trying to stop the spread of the gospel. But Christ got a hold of him. Paul repented put his faith in Christ. There's no one that's gone too far for the grace of God. Friends, that's you this morning. I I urge you, admit, admit your need for him. Admit your sin. Pray to him to save you. Cast yourself upon his mercy. Trust in Christ as your savior and you will find him to be good and perfect and righteous, and sufficient in every way. And you will find eternal life. And if you're here this morning, and your faith is in Christ, be encouraged. God works among us. He is speaking through his word right now. Respond in faith. Respond in in repentance. And by the grace and mercy of God, you will be strengthened to endure all things by the power of his word. Christ, our Savior, has conquered all these things by the blood of his cross and the power of his resurrection. 
brothers and sisters, our God is at work and will continue to be a work, at work among us through his word.